Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 10th of May, 2021, and this is episode 207. On today's podcast, I speak to historian Dr Paul Harris about his work on the British General Staff during the Great War. Paul spoke to me from his home in Bath. Hey Paul, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Yeah, OK, Tom. Um, basically, I have always had an interest in the war. What really happened to me was that the First World War almost became a second career in that I left my full first career, which was in the financial markets in the city. And then I went to Birmingham and did a master's degree that then led on uh, to a doctorate. And that's really um, what started me, got me going into the war. I found out an awful lot more, obviously, uh, involved in that academic research. And then I, subsequently, I then had two books and a few articles published. So that's really the, the, the story of it. So tell me about your research on the general staff. OK, really, during uh, my uh, studies and research, it, it became increasingly apparent to me that there was one part of the command team that had been overlooked. Uh, the work of historians tended to focus upon the competence of generals rather than the staff that supported them. So really the staff could be described as the missing element here, even though they played a critical role, I believe, in the military leadership team. We have the orthodox view of the staff, arrogant, remote, out of touch with the realities of the front line. Many commentators held them responsible for the mismanagement of operations in the field and the profligate loss of British lives in futile offensives. Uh, staff bungling judged to be the cause of many unnecessary casualties. But it occurred to me, was this actually the case? The staff have been the target of much criticism, but very little systematic study. Um, so their contribution has either been relegated to footnotes in the study of commanders or defined by the view they were isolated, indulged and incompetent. But were these views just so in my book, I set out to fill the gap in our understanding of the staff by undertaking a detailed investigation of their characteristic and their evolution over the course of the war. I wanted to determine if the depiction of the incompetent red tab was based on sound evidence or merely part of the Lions v Donkeys perception of the war. So and was this research based on your PhD? Uh, yeah, very much so. Um, I really, well, although I became interested in the staff uh, prior to that, but yeah, very much based on the PA. So, Paul, could we start at the beginning? Can you tell me what the general staff was? What was its purpose and when did it come into being? Well, perhaps the best way to describe the general staff in any army is that they act as assistants to the commander. Um, they convert his ideas into orders. They serve as counsellors. Effectively, they're the brain, the nervous system of the army. Um, the origins of the modern staff organisation can be traced 
back to the Napoleonic period. Um, at that time, the emphasis was on education and a systematic approach to warfare. Um, we have the first military college in Britain, founded in 1799, High, Wick High Wycombe. Uh, it was the precursor of the Staff College at Camberley, established in the mid-19th century. But really, general staff and staff work come into their own with the rise of Prussia in the 19th century. So the war with France in 1870 illustrated that a well-trained staff could make a major impact um, on military success. So after witnessing the rise of the Prussian war machine, it became apparent to some in Britain that we were lagging significantly behind. A book called The Brain of the Army by Spencer Wilkinson, um, we're talking the end of the 19th century here, was a guide to the workings of the Prussian staff. But it was really the poor standard of British staff work during the South African War that proved the catalyst um, for significant significant change. We have between 1904 and 1906, the British belatedly formed a gen staff. Um, graduates Camberley, now in great demand, capacity, uh, the college was therefore expanded and Britain went on to found an Indian Army Staff College in Quetta in 1907. If you're talking about in practical terms, what did the staff do during the First World War? A very quick summary would cover they were responsible for administration. Their, their, the mainstay of their job was the formulation of orders, but they were a coordinating unit. Intelligence was their responsibility, reliefs, marches, and really um, offensives in terms of planning those offensives and putting all the orders together. So that, that's really the practical um, role of the staff in the British Army in the First World War. So if I wanted to become a, a general staff officer before the First World War, what would I need to do and what qualifications would I require to wear the, to wear the red tabs of a general staff officer? Well, before the war, you'd need to have gone to Camberley, to the Cut Staff College and passed the two-year course. Uh, you'd then get a qualification, the PSC, Past Staff, College. But what we see happening in 1914, war breaks out. All the students from Camberley rush off um, to, to get to France and the college uh, has a few librarians left and basically has to close. Um, so it quickly became apparent to the British Army uh, that they would need to train um, many more officers to fill the growing number of staff positions. So how do you do that? Um, what they uh, set out with was a plan to set up temporary staff schools in France. Um, and later, these became also established in Britain. Um, we see the first one in early 1915 at Saint-Omer, and then in 1916, um, a staff, staff call at Hesdan. And what they did there was squeezed a two-year staff course into six weeks. In tandem with that, they also ran what was effectively an apprenticeship system. Um, and we have regimental officers would be attached to headquarters staffs and basically taught on the job. So during the, during the war, men with a PSC qualification they filled the senior staff post, but most staff officers had not been to Camberley Staff. 
colleague. So, Paul, we come to the uh, idea of the myths of the general staff to which you've alluded to. Now, we obviously, we've got, um, I suppose, our most famous general staff officer, which is General Melchett from Blackadder's, um, in the Blackadder series, num uh, Blackadder Goes Forth, where he's busy moving his drinks cabinet closer to Berlin. So what were the myths that surround the general staff and what's the level of truth in them? Well, I'd, I'd say, Tom, yeah, Blackadder, it's splendid comedy. Uh, was it reality? Well, I think the staff were an easy scapegoat. Um, they were perceived as an elite who did not share the dangers of war with the truth. Um, the orthodoxy, the myth, I would argue, is their plans were made in safety, in relative comfort. They were removed from the fighting. So if an action failed, blame the staff. And that narrative has been endorsed by many of the memoirs generated by the war. Um, but was it justified? I believe the evidence points in a different direction. Um, so let me say, the idea that staff officers will house in opulent chateau. Uh, that's inaccurate. Headquarters could be anything from a damp cellar to a school or a large house. But these locations were selected on the basis that there was adequate space for all the staff and the su supporting clerical team. So what may have been described as a chateau uh, was often just a large building. I think the other factor that has received very little rec recognition is the pressure and relentless nature of staff work. Personal diaries from officers re reveal the strain experienced by many of them. A lengthy spell on the staff could certainly lead to mental and physical exhaustion. We've got to remember the consequences of mistakes made in drafting orders could be very serious and particularly for inexperienced men who just trained on the job, who didn't have the PSC, they many felt out of their depth and that strain could really be exacerbated. So this supposed safety enjoyed by the staff, it really doesn't stand up to closer inspection. They were often exposed to danger. Um, they were often in the front line. The evidence shows staff uh, were in the forward zone frequently. Um, a good awareness of what was happening there um, is prominent in the personal accounts of the vast majority of staff officers. After all, that was part of their job, knowing what was going on in the front line. You can only find that out if you go there. Um, so I think those myths, are certainly about time they were punctured. And do you actually know how many actual general staff officers were killed or became casualties during the war? Uh, well, certainly uh, in my book, I've got all the numbers there. Uh, and it was rather more than we might think. Um, I think uh, certainly uh, we are up to at least um, the average four officers. So if you're talking about the staff being a shielded group, um, it, it really is just not the case. And who were the general staff in the Great War in terms of their sort of social origins? And were they all drawn predominantly from the uh, pre-war professional army? Well, yeah, what, what happens here is that we get a change that takes place during the war. So as you've just said, um, at the start of the war, um, all of the general staff were regular soldiers. They all had that PSC qualification we alluded to earlier. But we get a very different picture emerging as the war goes on. The proportion of regulars within the staff falls, as do the number of officers holding that PSC qualification. And the average age drops as well. So at the start of the war, the average age is 43 
By 1918, it's 35 in the general staff. Um, in fact, the youngest brigade major was future Prime Minister Anthony Eden. Um, and the youngest staff officer overall was a an officer called Captain Alexander Abercrombie. He was a junior staff officer, but he was only 20 years old. Um, some of the staff were dugouts. These uh, officers brought back from retirement to serve on the staff. Now, in terms of their background, um, the staff very much dominated by public school educated regular officers, but non-regulars that are brought in, territorials or volunteers, were mostly educated men with university backgrounds or grammar school backgrounds. So clearly the army wanted to choose men for the staff who had a good education. Um, most staff officers, certainly by the end of the war, had not been to staff college. They'd been drafted in. They'd been forced to learn on the job. And many of them were regimental officers. These men had, had seen combat. Most had commanded small units in the field. The majority of these regimental officers uh, were regulars. Uh, many of them were men who'd recovered from wound and were moved into the staff. So while the proportion of regulars among the general staff, it did fall over the course of the war, um, they did continue to make up the majority. Um, and across the wider army, if we look, regulars made up only 5% of serving officers, whereas in the general staff, that proportion was much higher at about 70%. So a, a limited number of territories and volunteers infiltrated the lower levels of the staff, but in essence, staff remain a group of regulars. We've got an effective glass ceiling in place here that prevented all but the smallest number of non-regulars to move up that staff ladder. Now, this question is really difficult to answer, but how effective do you think the general staff was during the Great War? It is difficult to answer, Tom. Assessing how the staff affected the military performance of the British Army is problematic. Um, to give a brief synopsis of their achievements, uh, you might state they performed fairly well during the first few months of the war, struggled during the middle period and evolved into a highly competent organisation in the last two years of the war. The chief difficulty we have in assessing staff effectiveness is the number of variables involved. So judging the staff work of an operation mounted in 1915 against one staged in 1918 has to account for differences in tactics, technology, terrain, the units involved and the strength of the opposition. Um, I think we can say that by 1918, the staff produced a much, much higher uh, monthly output of operational order. Um, that was reflected in the higher operational tempo of the army and illustrated how proficient the staff had become to actually successfully manage that. Certainly, the expertise of the staff could play a critical role in the performance of a military unit in the field. Poor staff work could lead to disaster, while a well-planned operation led by capable staff really could make all the difference. And let me give you just one quote. Uh, one senior officer remarked in 1917, well, their staff has been splendid. I never realised after this long time that I've been at a corps headquarters how much depends on a staff. So what factors made them successful? Well, I think the achievements of the staff being consistently underrated. 
um, insufficient consideration has been given to the factors that they had to overcome during the war. Uh, they faced tremendous changes in a short period of time. The British Army underwent a military transformation from a colonial police force to a mass army effectively prosecuting all arms warfare. And the staff had to embrace changes in technology, in tactics and in structure. So in common with a wider army, they had to go through a learning process to overcome enormous challenges presented by the war. And lack of experience and a shortage of trained officers was an issue they had to contend with for a large part of the war. And the statistics here are compelling. From 1914 to 1918, the total number of general staff posts on the West Front grew tenfold. And if you add in the artillery and engineering staff, that increased even larger. So we have a staff that faced transformation in the nature of warfare, a staff that was forced to undergo an exacting learning process. And whilst, yes, inexperience led to mistakes, sometimes with tragic consequences for those in the front line, successful staff planning garnered accolades. It was really the errors which have attracted the, the criticism. Um, so I would argue the staff surmounted considerable adversity to emerge as part of a war-winning army and their contribution has still really yet to receive the appreciation that it was. And my penultimate question Paul is what project are you currently working on? Um, well at the moment I've just actually um, finished um, a project about an officer called uh, Alfred Davis. Uh, this has been published in Stand 2, actually, of the Western Front Association um, under the title of the youngest um, lieutenant. Um, but the other uh, area that I'm looking at at the moment um, and the working title for this is starting at rock bottom um, are some of these new army divisions because what's extraordinary about these new army divisions is uh, they, they start off from scratch at the beginning of the war um, really things uh, don't look too good for them um, in terms of their competence but by the end of the war they evolve into extremely efficient and extremely effective fighting units um, many of them better than regular so what I'm looking at there is what it what effect did the star play in that? Is it that particularly good staff officers came to those new army units? So I, I want to look at all of that aspect of the staff in terms of the new army. And finally, where can people find out more about your book? Uh, well, in terms of that, that book is published uh, by Helion, um, but you can also find that on my uh, website as well. Let me give you the URL for that. Uh, it's www.harrisfirstworldwar.com. So that's harrisfirstworldwar.com Paul, thank you very much for your time Okay, thank you very much Tom You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>